Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, Talk About Infertility. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am both the host of this show as well as the director of the nonprofit, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about the current trends in third-party reproduction. We will be talking with Corey Burke. He is an embryologist and tissue bank director at Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank. Welcome, Corey, to Creating a Family. Don, thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Today, we're going to we're going to be doing a show that is uh, over an overview of where we stand right now in third-party reproduction. There's been so many advances in the last, well, I was going to say 10 years, but honestly, five years, we've been seeing advances. And we've, and, and we've also been seeing a real societal shift towards acceptance of third-party reproduction. So for people who are, are thinking about it now and are trying to figure out, is this for me? What are my options? That's what we're covering today. So it would probably help since you and I and, and the people in the field know what we mean by third-party reproduction. But for an average person, that is not the term that they use. So what do we mean by third-party reproduction? Well, that's a great question because it really means a lot of things. But basically, it means using someone else's sperm or eggs or embryos that have been donated by another person to achieve pregnancy in an infertile couple. That covers everything from sperm donation, egg donation, again, embryo donation. Some people have embryos left over from an IVF cycle. They don't have anything to do with Don't shouldn't say don't have anything to do with them, but don't want to use them further. And sometimes they'll donate those to uh, a couple who needs them. So there's many, many aspects to third-party reproduction. It also includes surrogacy, although the surrogate is not necessarily donating a sperm or egg or embryo. They are donating the the vessel to carry the the Mm -hmm. pregnancy in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people don't consider surrogacy as a part of third-party reproduction, but I do, because it's all in the same genre. I liked how you said that. She is donating. She's donating a a uterus. So (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that's, for, for me, my perspective, anybody who's donating something to help in that journey to become pregnant, I think they all fall under third party. Yeah, I as well. All right, so let's begin with really the, I guess, the granddaddy of third-party reproduction, uh, or certainly what we have been doing for a much longer period of time, and that is sperm donation. So have there, what are the current trends in sperm donation right now? You know, that's a great question. And like you said, sperm donation has been going on for so long. Yeah, current trends, that's an interesting topic. What What's the current trend? Yeah. You know, not a lot changes with sperm. Sperm right. is, is sperm, is sperm, is sperm. But there are some new things going on. One thing that you you touched on a little bit earlier is the amount of people who are using sperm is ever growing. In 1995, about 180,000 women used donated sperm. By 2017, over half a million women used donated sperm to achieve pregnancies or to attempt to achieve pregnancy. So the, the growth has been phenomenal. And, you know, what's, what's contributed to that is, is the big question. That's yeah. probably one of the current trends. Yeah. That's what I was saying. What, wh- why? Yeah. Okay. Acceptance, you know, everybody. So, so there's a number of things. There, there's been a lot of movie stars or, or, or rock stars or whatever out there that have used sperm or, or other donated gametes to become pregnant with, you know, you have these 50 year old Madonnas or whoever they happen to be getting pregnant, you know, they're, they're not getting pregnant on their own. They're having help. Um, and I think that's, that's been a big part of the acceptance, you know, that just the spotlight on it, that people do this. It's not uncommon. It's not taboo. It's, it's, it's not a, you know, I don't want to say it's not a big deal, but it's just not taboo anymore. 
there's also been a trend towards single women having babies on their own. There's a lot of women out there who, you know, hit, hit that ripe old age of 35 or so and say, Lord, you know, I got I got to have my, my children now. I can't wait to find Mr. Right. You know, and they're moving on, on that action. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're taking that, that step and, and using donor sperm to achieve the family they want to have. And, you know, lastly, well, not lastly, but one of the primary things that has made a huge impact is the acceptance of, of gay marriage and, and gay, gay couples. And, you know, lesbian couples use a lot of sperm. Why? Mm-hmm. Lesbians don't have sperm. I mean, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a fairly simple thing with, with heterosexual couples, you, you need a, a partner that doesn't have sperm. So it's a whole different issue, but with lesbian couples, they, they just simply don't have sperm and they mm-hmm. need sperm to, to have babies. You know, that's the, the simple birds and bees of the matter. Right. And that's, that's gone a huge, huge way for, for the acceptance. I think, you know, we had to start step by step. We had to have people, society just accepted as not being taboo. Um, and then, then single women moving on with that. And then lesbian couples have certainly just driven that over the top. You know, I mean, there, there's a huge number of lesbian couples who, who use sperm to have babies. So it's a great thing. I, I'm very happy about that. What, what do you see as far as the numbers, who percentages we we think in terms, and I think incorrectly, obviously, that that it is heterosexual couples with a male factor infertility, mm-hmm. and that they're using donor sperm. And I think in the past, that probably in, in the distant past, that probably was the majority yeah. of people. So who are you, who is using donor sperm right now? Yeah, I mean, again, single women. We have a lot of single women, but I, our major major at Cryos, the major customer for sperm donation is lesbian couples, you know, again, they are, they are driving the market tremendously. Mm-hmm. And, and again, the, the single, single women also as well, but certainly more lesbian couples come to us than any other one fraction of the, of the population. Mm-hmm. And how do they, how are they changing the field of sperm donation? How are the singles and the, and well, predominantly the, the lesbian couples, but also the single women, how are they changing how, how we have, how we've done sperm donation in the past? That, that's an excellent, excellent question. So, I mean, the big thing for this, so when we think about people with male factor infertility, you know, generally they have to go to a physician of some sort, whether it's a, a family practitioner that, that, that does IUIs and things, but, you know, normally they have to go to, to a reproductive endocrinologist. They need the help. They have to have somebody there to help them. Mm-hmm. One of the things with single women and, and lesbian couples they don't necessarily need the help. Again, like I touched on earlier, lesbians don't have sperm. I mean, it's, it's, it's a simple fact. They don't have sperm. They don't need as much help to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. So we offer home insemination. You can actually purchase sperm from us and do it, do it, do it yourself. You know, if you think about the process, it's, it's not that difficult to inseminate yourself. You know, people do it every day in nature, and it's not that difficult. And that's one of the major changes that has come about. We have a lot of single women and a lot of lesbian couples or, or whatever the situation may be that don't require the medical help. So they don't have to spend thousands of dollars to go to the doctor and have the um, have a workup done on them and stuff. Now, that said, I always recommend that you make sure you're, you're healthy enough to become pregnant before you try to become pregnant. But, you know, other than that, you probably don't need much help. Mm-hmm. You know, most people in, in normal life go through life and they, they have sex, they become pregnant, and that's just the way it works. And we've, we've kind of made it that way for, for the people who don't need the help now. You can actually mm-hmm. purchase sperm from us, inseminate yourself at home. It's, it's as, as successful as anything else. And it's, it's been a major trend that, that I've seen come along in the past, uh, I don't know how long it's been, eight years or so, mm-hmm. 10 years or so that mm-hmm. we've been doing home inseminations. 
and it's ever-increasing. What is the success rate of home insemination versus inseminating in a doctor's office? Well, so far, what we can tell, there's not a lot of good studies on this. Um, we're actually trying to see if we can put some stuff together regarding this. But the, the average success rate is around 20%, either if it's done IUI in a doctor's office or by home insemination. It's slightly less. It might be around 17% for, for home insemination, um, just because it's, it's, the insemination is done vaginally rather than going through the up into the uterus. Mm-hmm. So it you know, it starts out a little slower, but it's really very successful. It's, you know, if you think about how often you get pregnant in nature, it kind of mimics those numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, and a heterosexual couple has this as an option, but the difference, they have male infertility. The difference is they're already in the medical community in the sense that generally they have been seeing a reproductive endocrinologist trying to figure out why they aren't going to get yes. pregnant. So they're already in the system. And are you seeing that that heterosexual couples are less likely to use home insemination? Yeah, I, that's a great, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I would say yes, they're a little less likely to use it because again, they already are in the system, so they've they've already got on that on that train, so to speak. They're already yeah. there. They're having it done. You know, I think that. I think it's a different situation because usually the male has to be diagnosed as having mm-hmm. male factor. And that can be a lot of things. They can either just not have sperm in general. They could have something wrong with their sperm. And, you know, if you don't have sperm in general, that, that could be a little easier to diagnose that you just have no sperm and you, something's, there's something possibly fixed or whatever. But I, I think that, I think you hit on the point right there. I think that they are already in the system and I think they just generally stay in the system. And again, there's nothing wrong with the system. It, it, it's fine. It, it, it works well. But I think there are some heterosexual couples that would be good candidates for home insemination as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do recommend this sometime when we have, we do some client storage. So we'll have people going out of town, like in the military or something like that. They're, they're being shipped overseas. And, you know, oftentimes when we, when we store them, I'll recommend to them that they can do the home insemination themselves and don't have to seek a doctor to do this. Now that said, Docs, please don't be mad at me. You know, <laughs> you know I, I hate to, I'm not trying to steal business from you. I'm just trying to help as many people as we possibly can. Well, they're not going to, um, an IUI, an interuterine insemination, uh, which yeah. as you mentioned, is, is different primarily in, from a home insemination. One, it's done in a doctor's office, but two, it, uh, you know, a catheter is threaded through the cervix into mm-hmm. the uterus and the sperm is deposited there versus depositing the sperm in the vagina where it then travels through up through the, yes. the cervix into the uterus. That's the, that's the major distinction. I don't think doctors are really going to worry about missing a few no. IUIs. They, <laughs> they, they shouldn't. And you know, most people, uh, yeah, exactly. They shouldn't miss too many IUIs. Yeah. And I don't think that's, that's not where they're making their money anyway. Right. 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 I have some exciting news. We have just celebrated our 15th year. That was uh, last week, actually, our 15th year of doing this podcast. That means we have 15 years of archived shows. So if you subscribe to this podcast, you have access to 15 years of wonderful interviews with leading experts on topics that are so directly relevant to your infertility journey. So please subscribe to the Creating a Family podcast. And if you don't know how, it's easy to do on whatever app you're using to listen to this podcast. You can search for Creating a Family and there's a button that says subscribe. Okay, another change in 
well, I change it. I'm curious about. We have certainly seen in the last ten years, but certainly even more so in the last five, three type of years, the uh, stories in the media about. Uh, anonymous, well, this is uh, uh, anonymous donors or people finding out about that they were conceived through donor sperm and having not been told. And the real push from the donor conceived community that there, there should not be anonymous donation. That is analogous to the movement that has been happening the last 30 so years, maybe even more in adoption where it used to be closed adoption, and now we're moving to open adoption. Okay, before people get all upset, I am not making a direct correlation between third-party reproduction and adoption. However, I do think non-genetic parenting has some commonality, so it's worth at least mentioning that that has happened. So where do we stand now on the whole idea, and I'm only speaking of sperm donation at this point, of identified versus anonymous donors? You know, that's that's a very complex topic. You know, the whole point of, of when we started sperm donation back in the long, long, long ago, you know, a lot of the donors were were medical students, you know, and they would they would get people to donate, donate in medical school. You know, they didn't want to be identified. We probably had anonymity. We couldn't find out who they were. Mm-hmm. I get I get the reason that it started that way. I, I understand it completely. Mm-hmm. I think the push now is more towards open identity, meaning that your child can find out when they're 18 or whatever the set age happens to be. And I think that's a great thing. I'm all for open identity. I think that's the best way to go. However, for us in the sperm business, the world's a big place. And in some countries, believe it or not, known donors are not allowed. They must be anonymous donors. That's just the way it is. So, you know, and there are still some people in the U.S. who, you know, right or wrong, and again, this is this is something that still be debated, I guess, but ethically, you know, heterosexual couples, a lot of times a man, you know, it's a big deal to them to not have sperm. It's, it's mm-hmm. in, in my opinion, it's a little bit more of an issue than women who have infertility because, you know, you can use an egg donor, you carry a baby with the, with your, with the donated eggs, you have the baby. It's your baby, you know, from a, from a male standpoint. If you're using donor sperm, it's not your baby. There's, you know, there's no connection at all. Somebody else got your wife pregnant. So mm-hmm. I, I understand some of the reasons for it. I think we have to come to a solution on this because I don't think it's right to keep the genetic parenthood from, from a, a donor at all. And I'm all in favor of, of just having non, or, uh, non-anonymous donors. I think it's the way to go. I think we're a long ways off from getting there. I think the U.S. is a little bit closer than anybody else, maybe U.K. or a few places like that. But I think there are countries that have actually outlawed anonymous donation. There are. Yeah, there are both. That's exactly mm-hmm. it. There are mm-hmm. there are both. And that's kind of the, the complexities of running a sperm business, right? So you have to keep <laughs> up with all these regulations. There yeah. are countries that just absolutely don't allow known donation, and there are countries that don't allow unknown donation. So, mm-hmm. And, you know, in today's world, Anybody can have a a twenty three and me, or your your cousin can have a twenty three yeah. and me, or yeah. a family member, and you will be found. You know, if somebody is looking, you will be found out. Yeah. And I think you know it's it's so complex because back in the day we used to promise people that they would be anonymous, and you know right. they had they had careers and things to think about, and families and things to think about, and you know I kind of feel a little bad for those people that we. That, I'm not saying we, me personally, but we promised yeah. would be anonymous. Yeah. And now today, all of a sudden, it's like, you're not, you know, 23 right. and me just blew mm-hmm. that out of the water and you're, you're, you're there. 
So, you know, it's, it's very complex thing. And I think we still have a long way to go with, with working all of this out, but I think we're getting much closer. And I would say in our particular business, cryos, just speaking of cryos, we're in the U S we're about 70% of our donors are known donors. And again, that's, that's where we would like to go, but because we sell to other countries outside of the U S as well, we have to keep some anonymous donors coming. Yeah, there used to be. I mean, I remember probably, I'm not sure, maybe over 10 years ago, there was all, all you would hear about is that if if you require donors to be identified, and keeping in mind, but what we mean by, by identification is mean that they, it depends, of course, on what, depends on what the agreement is. But generally mm-hmm. speaking, it's that the that you can transmit medical information or you can transmit information when the child turns 18 or whatever, there's an age that the child then would have the access to this information. So that's what we mean by known. And there was this hue and cry that said, there will be no, all donors will just completely shrink. That will not happen. And that really has not come to pass. No. Yeah, it's and, and it's actually it's it's very remarkable because I, I like you. I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen that that change. You know, back in the, in the day, we would have people doing IVF that would almost sneak into the practice. You know, they didn't want anybody to know that they were even doing IVF, much less right. using a sperm or egg donor. Mm-hmm. And you know, just in the donors themselves, we have had a trend towards known donation. People want to be known known donors. They. You know, it didn't used to be that way. They all wanted to be secretive. They all didn't want anybody to know about it. But now it's 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 completely reversed in some senses. Interesting. Yeah. So it's a very interesting situation. Yeah. Well, and, and as you point out, the reality is there is no such thing as an, an anonymous donor. And and I think I'm sure that you tell your donors that and your recipients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, would like to touch on one other thing. You know, we just recently, Colorado came up with a, a new law that's requiring donors to be known donors and to be 21 years of age. You know, I think that's great. I, I really do. I think that's a great, great law sort of. But at the same time, it concerns me a little bit because, you know, by doing that, they've cut the donor pool down considerably by making it 21 and up and also taking away the anonymous donation. So, you know, there's good and bad. There's That's why I say I don't think we're quite there yet. I think that the Colorado law has some some merit to it. But at the same time, we know that in the UK many years ago when they, when they changed status, mm-hmm. they lost all their donors. You know, so I, I just think we're not quite there yet, but I think it's a good law that, that they've passed. Maybe it could be tightened up a little bit. I think that they just, you know, I, I think it's people thinking they're doing the right thing without thinking about all the consequences that go along with it. As is often the case. And, and keep, in, keep in mind, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but keep in mind, even with anonymous donors, you get all of the information from a sperm bank. You get all of the health information. You get everything except the one thing you don't get is to actually contact them. Okay. So, and even with our, with our known donors, you have the, you have the option to contact them, whether they contact you back or not is, is up to them, Mm -hmm. but you can know who they are and and know all about them. But that's, that's the major difference. You know, anonymous donors, you still know almost everything you could possibly know about them. You just don't get that, that personal contact portion. Well, but how do you handle the issue that if somebody, what you get from them is what they know at the time, Yes, you know, which and we, or even what they remember or whatever, they're young and they don't, I mean, so what you get is, as is a moment in time and you Absolutely. don't get, and vice versa, because I certainly know situations where recipients have 
uh, their child has developed a genetic condition mm-hmm. and they have reached back out into the to the sperm bank and said yep. we have you know our child has this condition it is genetic sure. and so the sperm bank has actually been able to help the donor by saying mm-hmm. you need to be tested for this so uh, before we move off of sperm donation where do you get and has there been a change and where do you find donors and not just you, I'm not speaking of, of, I meant in general, the industry in general. Sure. And has there been a change in the last X number of years? No, absolutely. There has been a change. But one thing, I want, let, me, let me touch on that last little bit you said. So sure. we do, when we, when we sell sperm to people or eggs for that matter, you know, one of the part of the contract that we sign with them is that they agree to notify us of any genetic conditions that should arise in their child. And the same is true of donors. So we do mm-hmm. track the donors. We do try to contact them annually and make sure that there is no changes. Um, and there is times when things come up, you know, family histories come up or something genetic pops up that we didn't know about. Sure. So it works both ways, both with the donors and the recipients. Uh-huh. So I just want to touch on that a little bit, but right. yes, as far as donors, donors have been very interesting the last couple of years due to the pandemic. Oh um, man, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> donors have just, they, they've gone way, way down, you know, and, and the, the good or bad situation for, for most sperm banks is the sales of sperm went up tremendously, like a hundred percent. Incredible. And that was during the pandemic, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Why? Um, why? Do, first of all, before we go back to that, why do you think that the use of sperm increased so much during the pandemic? I have heard, I've read that uh, about that. You know, I think there's several reasons, but I, I think one thing is anytime we have a, a big event like that, like 9-11 or something like that, you always see reproduction increase, mm-hmm. you know, or, or World War II, um, any of these things. You know, we've always increased our reproduction during those points. I think it's somewhat human nature to just feel that way and do it. Um, I also think that some people were stuck at home being bored and said, hey, great time to have a kid. You know, we got a couple of years to, to figure this thing out. So maybe we'll have a child in the meantime. So, you know, I'd love to see somebody actually do some research on that and see what, what the real reason is. But I do know, like I said, in times of tragedy or, or national events like that, you know, we do tend to increase the numbers of production that we have going on. Well, I wonder too if the, and this is I, this is all speculation. I'm just curious if you've heard about this that people were home and and uh, yeah. working from home, and all of a sudden, that of course it is a total myth to think that you can work at home without childcare. <laughs> that just if anybody's listening, let me tell you that is a myth. You have to. It's you can't get anything done with kids, uh, you know, work wise. Although with if both parents are working at home, you know, working shifts, you know, doing working shifts, you know, where one takes the morning, one takes the afternoon. So for some people, I wondered if you know, I, you know, we can't afford childcare, but you know. If he'll take the morning until 12 and I'll take 12 to 6, that mm-hmm. type of thing, and we both get up at you know whatever or we work in the evening, I wonder if that had something to do with it. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Like I said, I'd love to see Me too. something something concrete about it, see, see what we can find out. Yeah, I would like. Yeah, okay. So researchers out there, Corey and I are curious, <laughs> and so are our listeners. All right, now going back to where you're getting, so, so the... the you, the pandemic one that does make sense. Yep. Although, is it was it because people didn't want to come in? Or- I think that's that's so for for me. That's I think the biggest thing. You know, I even myself knowing as much as I know about it. Uh, you know, I was I was very paranoid about going to the doctor's office. Right? Who wants to go to a doctor's office and sit with a bunch of people who are breathing on them? Yeah. Uh, you know, wear yeah. all of this stuff and and you know wearing a mask to the to the sperm bank and and all. You know, it just it isn't a it isn't conducive to producing sperm, right? I mean, it's just, 
is just not the place you want to be and, and want to do that. And I think that's the big thing, you know, and also for us, you know, you know, not to make, there's no secret about it. We, we try to locate ourselves near universities because that's our target audience, right? Educated young men who, who can provide sperm for us. The university shut down and we're all doing online learning. So, you know, um, all of our, all of our yeah. university of central Florida students were gone. There was nobody on campus. All mm-hmm. the people in Raleigh were gone. Every, every place that we're located at Gainesville, nobody was there. And, you know, that took a huge impact on us. That just, that just really, really took its toll on, and on all, all the sperm banks, not just us. We all do the same thing. You know, so I think that was a huge, huge thing of it. And again, just people not wanting to congregate in, and again, I shouldn't say it this way. I know it, it probably sounds weird, but I think a lot of people think the same thing. Of all the places you probably don't want to be is a medical office, right? I mean, you got mm-hmm. sick people there and it's a good place to get sick. So, but not, yeah. but, but not, not, but, but when people are donating sperm, they're going, they're going into a well, doctor's office. Sure. It seems, I mean, it, it's like that, but it is, it is fairly, you know, it is somewhat like a medical practice. It, it very yeah. much is like a medical practice. We try to make it that way. We don't want to make it too, too sleazy, if you will. We want it to be more sure. of a medical practice. We want people to feel like they're going in and, and, and doing what they need to do. Of course, the cabins are, are nice. They have, they have videos in them and all that sort of stuff, but you know, it is still kind of like going in a medical practice, a bunch of people wearing lab coats and working in the lab and that sort of thing. Yeah. And blood's being drawn. And, you know, basically it's like going to the doctor's office. So I, I think that was a huge, huge portion of it as well. Have you seen it bounce back now that the, whether or not we say the pandemic is over, I wasn't going to say that even though our president has, but whether, <laughs> but since life is beginning to return to normal and, and IE universities are mm-hmm. now back in person. Yes. Yes. That, and that made a huge thing. And, you know, being that we're mainly located in Florida, of course, we've been open all along. So it, it's, it's come back greatly since the start. We're back to our normal numbers now. We were, we were like I said, we were desperately low a year and a half ago, but the numbers are, are coming back rapidly. Definitely with sperm. Our egg donors haven't come back quite as much as our, as our sperm donors have, but um, they're coming back as well. And, you know, one other thing I'd like to touch on on, on the whole pandemic thing as well you know, the gray market. I've talked with you about this, I think, before. The gray market is what we call the Craigslist or, or Facebook sperm donors that are out there. And I know that during the pandemic, that increased. And I don't know why exactly. I think just the, the desire to get pregnant in general increased. But, you know, the, this, this is a trend that really worries me in sperm donation because it, with sperm banks, we take about 2 to 4% of all the people who apply to us. And the reason we take that is because of the stringent screening that we do. You know, all of our donors are screened for medical and family history, infectious disease, genetics, carrier types, psychological evaluation, criminal, criminal backgrounds, education levels, all of these things. And we come down to about 2 to 4% of everyone who applies to us is acceptable for us to take. And the reason is they, they all come with some sort of risk. And we try to minimize that risk at, at sperm banks. You know, we're, we're doing all of this testing, you know, and we have these people out here selling their, their sperm on, on, again, I'm using Craigslist, which dates myself. I don't know that Craigslist even exists anymore, but Facebook or Instagram or whatever they happen to be using these days. And you don't know anything about them. They're not screening themselves. You know, I wouldn't say that nobody is, but mm-hmm. the vast majority of them are not screening themselves. They're just donating sperm. And I'm not sure what the value is to people buying this sperm. I don't see what, I know that some of them give it away, but you know, it's not that expensive to buy sperm in the first place. And I I just don't understand why you'd want to take that risk. You know, we, we 
do a family background check on people. We know people that if they have heart disease in their family, if they have cancer in their family, if their grandmother had had breast cancer, you know, we look into that and see if it's something that's passed on to the to the children that or the donors. So we do so much screening. It's just it's it, it's maddening to me to think that there are people out there selling their sperm online with absolutely no testing. And I will just point out one last thing with this. We actually had a um, had somebody contact me about a year ago or a little more and said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about buying sperm from this donor. He says he used to be a donor for you. Can you tell me anything about him? And first of all, I'm like, well, he's not our donor. <laughs> so why would I want to tell you about somebody that you're buying offline? But yeah. the thing is, they sent me a record that that I that we send out with, with each time we sell the sperm. We send out what's called a summary of records. And that tells all of the testing that you've had done. So all the infectious disease, all the genetics, everything that you've had done. And she says, well, here's your, here's your donor. He sent me this. And I'm like, no, that's not who this is. And that's not the person you're talking to. So the person was using something he had stole from us and selling it as himself, saying that he was perfectly healthy. He had been tested with all this stuff and it just wasn't the case. So it's, it's a very scary situation. And I, I really caution anybody who's out there thinking of, of looking at online sperm donors that are not coming from a sperm bank, whether it's us or any other legitimate sperm bank, please, please, please be very cautious in that. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that as being a trend, quite frankly. I did not realize it had increased. I mean, it's always been around, Yeah, but... Uh, yeah, it definitely increased during the, the COVID period because, and I think it was for two reasons. I think one, there was just a bunch of people that wanted to get pregnant. We saw the increase in, in the banks. You know, we had tremendous sales. And I, I think that some people just couldn't find what they wanted because as, as everybody's sales started to increase, our donor numbers went down. So, you know, some people just took that route and thought it was the easiest way to go. Mm-hmm. Hey, let me pause for a minute to tell you about Children's House International. They're one of our partners. They are an adoption agency. And, and some of you have heard about them in the past as their international adoption. However, they also provide consulting for international surrogacy, which is relevant to the topic of this show. They can help you untangle the the confusing aspects of international surrogacy. And of course, they also have an international adoption program working with 14 countries. All right, moving on to egg donation. The, The primary reason, well, certainly the primary medical reason that people have been using, um, we're not, well, the two main reasons, the primary medical reason for using egg donation is a woman having not enough, uh, her egg reserve is low or she, for some reason, she does not have eggs of the quality that can be, in, uh, that can be fertilized. Or then we also have the LGBTQ community that, uh, gay, uh, gay men. Mm-hmm. So those are our primary users of egg donation. What are some of the current trends? Well, again, you hit it right on the right on the head again. I, I think acceptance has gone up greatly with egg donors, and I, I touched on it a little bit earlier too, with saying, you know, if you if you're using an egg donor, I think that as a woman, I don't see how you cannot feel that it's your own baby, right? You carry it for for nine months. Everything everything else is natural except your eggs. And again, we've seen a, a decrease in applicants since COVID came around. It's starting to come back a little bit, but. You know, the, the decrease in egg donors, and I'm not sure exactly why, maybe it's more of a medical process. I'm, well, it is more of a medical it process. Is. It may maybe, it is. The, maybe the, the reluctance for people to come back. 
you know, because you have to go through a lot of treatments. You have to have exams. You have to have a retrieval. You have to have medications. You're giving yourself shots. You're and it's uh, yeah. you're, you're putting a lot of hormones in your body. I mean, it's a deal. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So anyway, we are seeing a, a decrease in numbers. I'm not sure exactly why, but it also That's seems to be the case worldwide because we're you know I'm in touch with we we have egg banks in Europe as well. And every place that I go to and everybody that I talk to is seeing the same huh. same decrease in donors. And I, I, it may just take a little longer to get them back in the door. I don't know what it is. You know, I hope they do because we we really, really need them. You know, you know how, what a gift it is for people to be an egg donor or a sperm donor. You know, it's just it's just a tremendous thing. And we really, really need to get our egg donors back. And we're, we're doing everything we can to try and bring them back in the door. But there still seems to be a little bit of reluctance there. Interesting. Where do you recruit egg donors from? Basically the same place as sperm donors. We do a lot of social media advertising. We we hit the campuses that we're located near. Do, just do a lot of focused marketing on that age group. So, you know, I guess one of the biggest trends I would say right now with the egg donation is the move towards vitrified eggs versus fresh eggs. That's a big In trend. In 2018, we actually surpassed the number of fresh cycles versus frozen cycles. So frozen cycles passed the fresh cycles in 2018. And that's really a big deal because um, there's so much convenience and cost factor related with using vitrified eggs that it's just, it's, it's been great. You know, every year it's growing more and more. We're seeing fresh donation kind of really tank down. And believe me, I am also a big fan of fresh donation. I've done that for many, many, many years. You know, one of my favorite things to do, it's almost, you know, it's, it's for me, it's, it's a great thing, but the vitrified eggs have just been such a phenomenal thing for us. What's well, created the whole idea of an egg bank? I mean, there wasn't yeah. egg banking before. Nope, not really, not at all. And and you just—that's another. You hit on so many good points, Don. It's just—it's—it's it's perfect. <laughs> um, you know, one of the, one of the things that has been a, a issue. People have been debating back and forth. Do frozen eggs work as good as fresh eggs? And you know, now it's getting to the point where they are very, very similar. There's uh, yeah, four or five percent pregnancy difference between the two. But I argue all the time, the reason that the pregnancy rates are different between the two is up until five years or so ago, embryologists were not very good at warming and culturing frozen eggs. Okay? Mm-hmm. And I say this as an embryologist. I don't mean any offense to any embryologist out there. Yeah. We just weren't really good at it. We, we were used to warming embryos. Embryos are, are a number of cells, you know, anywhere from eight to 70 cells. And if you kill a few cells when you're warming those, it's okay. Most of them live, they survive. A couple hours later, they're, they're perfectly fine. You know, an egg is a single cell. Mm-hmm. If you don't warm it properly, you don't treat it properly, it dies and it doesn't do anything. And there was that learning curve that went on. So when we started our egg bank back in 2015, you know, we had to train everybody who, who was warming eggs for us. And, you know, I, I can tell you, I go to a lot of labs. Oh, we warm embryos all the time. It's no problem. You know, we're great at this. We're fantastic. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> not, not quite like that. We have to step back a little bit, think what this is and think how we're doing this. You know, and now I would say over the past two or three years, the learning curve has really decreased. So they, they've, they've, they've hit that learning curve. They've, they've, they've come to most labs are now experts at thawing or warming their eggs and warming is just such a big picture. It's, it's vitrification is difficult to, to do anyway, but it's not that difficult. Warming is in my opinion, the more critical step in, mm-hmm. in vitrifying eggs. You have mm-hmm. to, if you can't warm the egg, you know, it doesn't live. It's just, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it used to be when we started doing this many years ago, 
you know, we'd sell with a, with a egg survival guarantee. We, you know, we guaranteed you'd have this many eggs survive out of a batch. But my point with that was always, what's survival? Is it just because the egg swells back up and looks like a normal egg? Did that egg survive? Well, probably not, you know, because we know that a lot of them don't fertilize. If they don't fertilize, to me, they probably didn't survive anyway. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I guess the long and short of that is we do have much better labs these days. Not much, much, but not much better labs. Much better embryologists in the labs that actually know how to work with eggs these mm-hmm. days. And, you know, I've got people that we've got a clinic in, in the Chicago area that actually they buy two eggs at a time from us. Two eggs at a time. And they're very successful with it. And it's just incredible because we we guarantee our eggs. If you buy six, we guarantee that you get one blastocyst out of the batch, which means one good transferable embryo at the end of the, of the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, most people get more, but we guarantee that. But this this particular lab in, in Chicago does fantastic. They buy two eggs at a time mm-hmm. and they have a high pregnancy rate. And think about how good that is for the clients. You know, if you're only having to pay for two eggs, and your IVF cycle, it's much more affordable for people who are mm-hmm. doing I- IVF with donor eggs. You know, mm-hmm. the cost of donor eggs, buying a, a cohort of eggs is $20,000 or more. Um, if you can buy just two of those eggs, it cuts your cost down considerably. And it, mm-hmm. it's, it's very nice. I, you know, I don't necessarily recommend using two eggs at, at just any clinic. If they're very good at it, it's one thing. But, you know, I still recommend that you you purchase six to eight eggs. I think it's a better better way to go because IVF is always a game of of attrition. We start with a certain number and we end up with a certain number. Mm-hmm. And, you know, usually starting with a higher number equals a, a higher chance of success. I remember quite a few years ago, you and I were talking at the uh, American Society of Reproductive Medicine Conference. And I said something about it's, you know, it's so hard to freeze eggs. And this is, it just become uh, no longer experimental. Uh, mm-hmm. We had been deemed and you and I were talking and I said, it's so hard because it's mostly water. And, you know, we have to worry about that. And you went, oh, no, freezing or vitrification isn't the problem, Dawn. It's the thawing. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, that's, it is. And, I, and, I, and I, I, I still remember that when you, to this day, you were saying, vitrification is not the problem. We can do that. But darn, it's hard to thaw those things. You are not kidding. Yeah, so hence the, um, which I think people don't, don't actually realize. So that has been the advent of, of banking, which of course is because we are now able to successfully freeze and thaw, has been just a, a huge shift. It's been, it's been so interesting. It seems to me another shift that we're, we're certainly seeing more of, and that is autologous egg donation. I think that's what I said that correctly. But anyway, freezing your own eggs for future mm-hmm. use. Are you seeing uh, an increase in that, not just for you, but I mean nationwide? Well, I, that's, a, that's interesting as well, because I, I do see it nationwide. I see a, a increase in it nationwide. But I think that it's very interesting that some areas do a lot more of it than other places. Um, New York, Chicago, a lot of California, huge. Mm-hmm. They do they do a tremendous amount of of, of self or, or freezing for for the patient. Mm-hmm. Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Arizona, not so much. It, mm-hmm. It's very interesting, and I don't it know is what interesting. it is. It could be socioeconomic situation. Maybe there's more advertising too. I think. Yeah, advertising <laughs> more more money to go. You know, I, I don't know. Socioeconomic. It seems to be in sure. the big city areas. It seems to go mm-hmm. much better now. You know, we're we're located in Orlando. Orlando is a pretty big city with a very young population, and 
and good income, but we don't see a ton of it in, in the Orlando area. Yeah, I think it's the both coast, north, well, not both coast, northeast in California. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's certainly probably Chicago, although I, that's anecdotal. I don't know that, but I'm, yep. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that's socioeconomic. I also think it's both advertising, but also what you see your friends doing and what you're, what the zeitgeist, what you're yep. hearing, you know, just through the grapevine. And I think that, uh, well, and it's also... Uh, uh, and we certainly know that some of the tech companies in California were, you know, yep. very, very publicly paying for egg freezing. So I think that also makes a huge difference. Yeah, and that makes that makes a huge difference when when Google or or Disney or somebody like that's paying the paying the bills. It makes it much more achievable and something that people take advantage of. Sure, although that is still the vast vast minority, not the majority. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. You know, I do think there is still a great deal of secrecy associated with egg donation. And I think that, as you pointed out, when you see a 45-year-old celebrity or anyone get pregnant with and get pregnant with twins, or the chances are very good, overwhelmingly good, that they use donor eggs. And yet, and it's not in any of our business. And I totally respect that it is the child's information and that we don't they they don't owe it to anyone to share this information. But I do think we still suffer from the misconception that uh, a woman's fertility can last into until her early to mid forties. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. And it would be so nice. You know, I, I agree with you, Don. I don't, I don't, there's no reason they have to, to say no. this, but Mm-mm. you know, I think it goes a long way for the ones who do. And, you know, there are, yeah. have been a number of people who, who've become pregnant with donor eggs or whatever it is. And they have made a, made an issue of it, you know, said I did this. And I think that's so great. It, it just helps other people so much. You know, if they see, see a celebrity mm-hmm. or whatever doing it, you know, and somebody has been wanting to have a child forever and they say, I can't do this. And, you know, they see somebody 45 or older having it and being done, then it kind of gives them hope. And, and mm-hmm. I, I really do appreciate it when people do actually come out and say, I used an egg donor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not just let everybody guess that, you know, I'm Superman. I, I was able to get pregnant on my own, even though I'm, I'm much too old to get pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, exactly. We would like to pause here to thank our partner, Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are a full-service fertility center specializing in in vitro fertilization, of course. However, they also do egg donation, egg and embryo freezing, LGBTQ plus family building, reproductive surgeries, as well as male reproductive medicine. They have highly individualized patient care and they offer it through 13 reproductive endocrinologists and fertility specialists. They also have a urologist and a full-service support team. All right, now let's talk about embryo donation, and that is where you would have an embryo almost always, not always, but, but most often, left over after a IVF cycle or cycles. The couple who created the embryos no longer wants to have more children. So they have excess embryos. They have a number of options, although quite frankly, their options are not that great. We used to be able to donate to research that really isn't much of an option now. They could do uh, and uh, destroy the embryos. 
or they can donate to another couple for them to use for mm-hmm. hopefully creating their family. So that would be, and that would, that last part would be embryo donation. Anything you're seeing, I, you know, you don't hear much about embryo donation. So I'm going to ask about current trends, but I, you know, why don't we hear, let me start by saying, or maybe it's just, you would think I would, because I'm absolutely fascinated by embryo donation, but I'm not hearing much about it. I of all people probably would. Well, that's a great point. And, and I, you would think I would as well. You know, I used to yeah. work for Embryo Donation International that uh, Craig Sweet and I started back in Fort Myers yes. years and years and years and years ago. And, you know, I, I ask that question all the time. Why do we not hear more yeah. about it? Um, I know that, you know, I'm not a, a, as regularly in touch with, with Dr. Sweet as much anymore, but I do know that they do have a, a fair amount of embryo donation business going on. You know, it's such a perfect scenario for me. I think you've got embryos left over. And, and this goes back to the fresh versus frozen egg donors, too, especially. So back in the day when we do fresh donations, you know, you get all the eggs from the fresh donor. You might end up with 20, 30 eggs that might make 20 embryos. OK, you get pregnant off of one or, t- you know, one. Maybe you have a second child and you have 10, 12, 14 embryos sitting around that are just sitting in a tank. And then you went through the options. You can mm-hmm. donate research. You can destroy them. You can do all these things. But, you know, it, especially with donor eggs, somebody donated eggs to you to help you have children. It just seems to me like mm-hmm. we'd be, get more people to want to donate their embryos following that. Sadly, if I remember correctly, and don't quote me on the, on the percentages, but it's only about 2% of the people with, with leftover embryos that will actually donate to embryo donation versus other options. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be you'd be shocked at how many people just hold on to their embryos. Yep. I, by hold on, I mean twenty years. You know, yep. they're still holding on to them. They're going to pay mm-hmm. for them until the day they die, and mm-hmm. then they'll let their children <laughs> deal with them. You know, so I just I don't get it. I I, I don't get it. Sort of, but at the same time, you know, it, it's kind of like giving your child up for adoption. If if you've got these embryos sitting in a freezer somewhere, you've got children running around that that have come from those embryos. So making that choice to say, okay, I'll give these embryos to somebody else has got to be a really traumatic Mm -hmm. thing to go through. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. like giving your child up for adoption in a sense. So I'd like to see more of it. I really would. I think you'll see more of a push in the, in the future. I I know that for years when when we started this, I don't remember when we started EDI, but it was, it's been a long, long time ago, but at the, at that point in time, there was approximately 400 to 500,000 frozen, abandoned embryos in the mm-hmm. United States. So these, these are embryos that people have just stopped mm-hmm. paying for. They've just disappeared. Yep. They're just gone. And the problem with that is no practice wants to destroy an embryo without the owner's, the parent's permission, right? Yep. So everyone sits on them because we're all scared that if we destroy yep. these embryos, even though we got a contract that says, if you don't pay mm-hmm. for these... You can destroy these and it can go years and years and years and people still don't destroy them because they know that as soon as we do, somebody's going to call up and go, Hey, I want my embryos. Yep. And that's going to create a giant mess. So it's, it's so, yeah, it's just a a huge situation that I would love to see a change come about. I would love to see more happen. I think with EDI, I think that the problem becomes that they probably don't have the resources to become bigger than they are. Um, there are some other ones, snowflakes and other ones like that, that they're pretty big, mm-hmm. but a lot of theirs is religious based and that nothing wrong with that. Just that that's what they particularly are. And actually is one of the reasons we started EDI. We found that 
you know, certain certain groups were not able to get embryos from them. And EDI was created to be something that you know anybody can donate, anybody can receive. Mm-hmm. So there are some good programs out there, and I suggest anybody who has an embryo that 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 wants to make don't let it go to waste, right? I mean, just just don't let it sit in a freezer. Don't destroy mm-hmm. it. If you can make that decision and you're happy with it, just look up an embryo donation place. A lot of practices accept embryo, da- I was just embryo donations. Say- so if you have mm-hmm. your own, if you're already going to your own doctor, chances are they may have, they may do it themselves. They may accept mm-hmm. your embryos for donation. You know, whatever service you use, you know, you've gone through all that pain and effort of creating that embryo. The embryologist has gone through a lot of pain and effort to create that embryo. The physician's gone mm-hmm. through a lot of make use of it. Don't, don't let it go to waste. I will say that creating a family has uh, a number of resources for helping people make this decision. It is often an amazingly difficult decision. Mm -hmm. And there are two basic models. There is the medical model where you can donate to, there are a a couple of organizations, Embryo Donation International uh, Corps, you have mentioned, but there's also the National Embryo Donation Center, which also follows the medical model. And as you pointed out, many clinics have their own internal egg, do- I mean, embryo donation program for embryos that they mm-hmm. have created. So those, that's the medical model. And then there are the, the adoption model. And there are a number of organizations. You mentioned Snowflakes, which is Nightlight mm-hmm. Adoptions. There are others who, who use the adoption model. And so there are, if you're looking to either donate or to be, to receive, and then there is also self-matching, which happens on various sites on the internet. So, so there are options. It's, I would have predicted it would have grown and I would have been wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> you right. and I both. Yeah, there you go. I just want to say thank you to Cryos International Sperm and Egg Bank, both for having Corey be here as our guest, but also for their long-term support of this podcast. Cryos is dedicated to providing a wide selection of high-quality, extensively screened frozen donor sperm and eggs from all races, ethnicities, and phenotypes. And they do it for both home insemination as well as fertility treatment. We've talked about that some, and we will be in this show. Cryos International is the world's largest sperm bank and the first freestanding independent egg bank in the United States, helping to provide the gift of family. So now let's move to our last uh, third, uh, third-party reproduction option, and that is surrogacy. And boy, howdy, are we ever seeing a surge in the media coverage of this? I, no doubt the Kardashians have helped. Uh, I, I don't even know. I'm sure there are, people are just rolling their eyes now because I'm not going to be able to say, but at least two of the Kardashians, and please don't send me emails. I realize there may be more, <laughs> but nonetheless... <laughs> Have uh, and that so many celebrities, it seems, have had uh, people in the news. I should say, have had children through surrogacy. So it really seems: are we seeing and are are we seeing an increase in numbers? Are we just seeing an increase in the publicity surrounding? Are the people who are doing it are the ones who are getting all the publicity because they're celebrities to begin with? Well, I think the jury's out on that one. To be honest with you, I don't know if we're seeing an increase in actual numbers with a little caveat there. So we are seeing some increase in numbers, but I'm not so sure. I think we're seeing just more of a, a of the publicity portion of it, but that's okay. Right. Because sure. as I spoke with before with, with sperm donors and egg donors, you know, until you get that publicity rolling, 
it, it the acceptance gets a little bit more difficult to deal with. So as we get more out there knowing that people are doing this, then the acceptance becomes greater. True. You know, the big trend that I'm seeing, and this is just particularly me, we're seeing a lot of cross-border reproductive care, meaning a lot of people come to other countries for surrogacy. And I think that's that's one of the big issues we have to deal with at this point in time is there are places that don't allow surrogacy. And even people who are doing cross-border care may or may not be able to return home with their child from from a surrogate. Mm-hmm. You know, you've certainly seen stories about, I don't want to say using India. I'm not sure if that's exactly the, the country I, I would like to point out, but, you know, where they weren't able to accept the child in Australia or something because they were born in India to a surrogate. Mm-hmm. And that's just a just a fabricated situation. Maybe it did happen. I don't know. But just giving as an example. Mm -hmm. And also, especially a lot of homosexual couples are using surrogates, just like I spoke Mm -hmm. about with the with the egg donor or the sperm donors, lesbians don't have sperm. Well, guess what? Homosexual couples don't have uteruses. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard to carry a, a baby. So that's one of the big ones that we are seeing increase is the homosexual population doing surrogacy, because again, they have to have somebody to carry the baby. It wasn't allowed that many years ago, you know, when it was not legal to do, except in certain states, but now it's pretty well accepted across uh, most mm-hmm. of the United States. And I, I'm not sure if it's ex- accepted in every state that may not, I, I don't know that for a fact, but I think that's where every state has different age. laws. They yeah, have, exactly. And then the laws often depend on whether you're allowed to reimburse a surrogate. Surrogacy right. is not cheap and nor, <sighs> and nor, nor should it be in that sense, what you're asking a woman to do. Although, uh, not all the money obviously goes to the surrogate, mm-hmm. but you also have to go through an IVF procedure. It is involved. Gay couples are certainly have certainly in the past been one of the top users of surrogates. And, and I should point out that you talked about U.S. couples going abroad, which is a- absolutely. And and uh, but we also have to acknowledge that there are a lot of, co- of of people from other countries that come to the U.S. absolutely for surrogates. So it uh, talk about cross border. It it goes both ways. Oh, it definitely I, goes both ways. Yeah. yeah, I do think just from a trend standpoint, I would say that one thing that I do hear more of, let's say in the last five years, maybe even a little longer, is a recognition of the human rights involved, especially in sur- using surrogates in other countries. And I do hear people. Hmm being more concerned about the fact that if they are thinking about going abroad for a surrogate, being concerned about the living conditions and, and reimbursement and the, the ethical, which is only a good thing. Yes, right. absolutely. 100%. All right. Well, anything else that you want to say about current trends and things that people should consider? I'll give you the last word to talk about third-party reproduction. Well, I don't really have any more current trends to add, but I will say, look, you know, anybody out there listening that wants to be a donor, particularly that's, that's, we need donors desperately to reach our goals, to have people achieve pregnancies. We need donors. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to have donors. Donors are the first line, you know, it's just such an incredible gift that they give us. So, you know, I just want to see third party continue. I want to see our, our donor numbers go up to provide the best selection to the people out there who mm-hmm. need to need to use the mm-hmm. gametes. Yeah. And for people who are are wanting to consider using them, just know that you are absolutely not alone. And uh, a lot of people are doing it and they have beautiful children as a result. So you are not alone. Thank you so much, 
Corey Burke for being with us today to talk about current trends in third-party reproduction. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. 